Welcome to another episode of No Small Jobs. I'm your host, Paul Newen. As always, thanks for joining us. Uh, make sure that you follow us on all our socials. That is Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I do it okay. I'm adding a few extra bits and pieces here, uh, here and there as I go along. Um, you know, some visuals along with the words. Uh, at No Small Jobs Pod is the handle across all three platforms. Make sure you add us, in, subscribe on wherever you get good podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, and Podcast Addict, amongst many, many others. And finally, there is the website, nosmalljobspod.com.au, where you can uh, access the episodes as well as have a read of any random thought to have about the episode itself. Uh, I'm going to dive into today's guest because, and I'm a little bit daunted because she's actually a lot better at this uh, recording stuff than I am, um, which we will certainly talk about later. We have Jen. Jen is a scientist and science communicator amongst many, many other titles as part of her multi-hyphenate career. Thanks for coming on to the show, Jen. Thanks for inviting me, Paul. Lovely to see you. <laughs> Lovely to see you too. Jen and I know each other because our kids go to school together. So she was very, uh, she was kind enough to volunteer her time and services to my cause. Anytime. Awesome <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Thanks. All right. So, uh, Jen, t- uh, how did you get into your career as a scientist? Oh, look, I'd have to say it was probably the family I grew up in. So my dad's also a zoologist. So my original training was in zoology, but my mum was also a pretty amazing scientist in her own right. And so I grew up doing all sorts of fun kind of science stuff. I remember when I was in about year eight, I took part in the science talent search and I decided I wanted to work out what I would have to feed our backyard chickens in order to have their yolks, that really golden colour that you um, that you get when you buy, you know, eggs from the supermarket. <laughs> and so I did this awesome experiment, you know, feeding the chooks different foods and cracking their eggs and getting out my paints and mixing the colours and trying to match the colours depending on what they ate. So been a science geek for quite a long time. Um, I got to do some pretty fun field work with my dad when I was a kid and I kind of always had a sense that I wanted to be out in nature and learning more about nature. So, What kind of field work did you do? Well, my dad, uh, all of his research was about frogs. So he moved to Australia from South Africa to do a PhD here to, to learn more about uh, frogs. And he was kind of here in the golden age of Australian frogs before a whole lot of species had actually been identified and named so he got to do incredible fieldwork all over Australia um, in the 60s and, and 70s. And just dis- they discovered his group um, that he was working with. They found a whole lot of new frogs and he has a frog named after him. <gasps> what is this frog's name? Uh, it's called Euperolia martini, also known as Martin's toadlet. <laughs> and it's this very small, fairly nondescript, but quite beautiful if you're into frogs. Um, a little toadlet that lives in Gippsland. So right now we're all a bit concerned because, you know, massive fires, mm. not quite sure how the species is going. But yeah, I just grew up knowing that I love science, knowing that I loved being in nature, knowing that I had this kind of inbuilt sense that I wanted to see the world from from animals' eyes. I guess I had this sense that humans, we were so focused on ourselves, but there was this whole other world out there. So in fact, originally I wanted to be a marine biologist. Uh-huh. did a lot of snorkeling, scuba diving, and I was just in tranced by this world under the sea um so yeah unsurprisingly finished year 12 and decided I wanted to do a science degree but I did also want to do an arts degree because I loved language and literature and so yeah I did both did a science degree and an arts degree so what made you choose science over arts in the end 
Oh, I guess probably because I thought I was more likely to get a job, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I loved, yeah, I loved language and literature and I did all sorts of great stuff, anthropology and classics. And I mean, I loved my art degree and as you'll discover later, it was really important because a l- big part of my job now is actually writing and I think I learned to write better as an art student than I did as a science student. <laughs> um, but I guess I just saw a clearer path in science. So I went from my undergrad to doing an honours year and then that turned into a PhD. And I don't know, I just loved the thought that I could be connected to, to animals and connected to nature and that my job could be spending time out in nature following animals around. It seemed pretty cool. It is. I, I guess I wonder sometimes though... Oh. One of the things I've learned through through interviewing all these people is that much of what we discover about ourselves is uh, opportunity and resources. Mm. So I kind of, I always, I wonder, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, what would have happened to you if your parents weren't scientists? Like, let's say your parents were poets or they yep. were writers um, and you hadn't really had the opportunity to be exposed to the science world and that world view would Mm. you have necessarily become the person you are now such a good question and I don't know I reckon maybe I might have ended up actually studying psychology and not realizing how much I was interested in kind of animal behavior because my PhD was basically about understanding the the mating and social behavior of a particular type of possum that we knew nothing about Mm. Um, and so I wonder if I'd never kind of had that impetus to study animals whereas in fact I just would have been a you know a trail runner and a hiker and someone who liked nature but actually I would have put my kind of thinking power to try and understand humans better because more recently I've decided that humans are in fact very fascinating and (laughs) you know yes we have all these problems in terms of being so egotistical and all the rest but I do find them fascinating so but I don't know it's such a good question I actually was at a conference on Friday and I was asked to give a, a plenary talk so I had an hour to talk about my career which you know like I I don't know if I want to nasal navel gaze for an hour, but I gave a talk about my career. And what I ended up talking about was the fact that I think um, understanding my values is really important. And now I can look back at my career through the lens of knowing what my kind of core values are, knowing what's really important to me. And I think my PhD was largely about my – one of my core values is connection. I'm, I'm very – Uh, strongly driven by connecting to people and connecting to places and I think being a researcher a field ecologist was really about that deep connection of getting to know these animals and trying to really understand the world from their point of view and getting to know this patch of bush inside out knowing every tree every rock you know I spent years and years and years working in these small well not that small but you know these relatively small areas of forest in northeastern Victoria and it just really filled my cup to um to know them and to feel intimately connected to them. And I, I want to. I got a bit stuck on one of the things you're saying about about humans because I also find human behavior really fascinating and sort of understanding why people do what they do. And one of the things that I think I've learnt from working in mental health is that you know. Firstly, language is is really quite important because the other side of egotism is self-care, is the idea that we we do need to look at for ourselves and prioritize things that are important to us. But the problem becomes that particularly in a globalized society, when when the things that we need for ourselves for self-preservation, for self-care, start clashing against other people's needs for self-care, you then have to kind of figure out the balance between 
what what it can turn into egotism where you suddenly decide actually my needs are more important than yours are therefore you don't deserve yours um versus um passivism where you end up just giving up all your rights and all your needs Mm -hmm. in order to make other people happy and being able to find that balance i don't think there is a clear line for that and that's and that's what it comes down to is that we, because the reason, you know, we, we, we see all this conflict and we're like, oh no, there's conflict. How dare we have conflict? But it kind of happens. Like it's natural. Mm. You can't avoid conflict because inherently we all have different upbringings, different beliefs, different needs, different desires, and they're going to clash mm. at some point, you know? Certainly there is, there is, there, sometimes you've got to ask yourself, well, does someone else's opinion necessarily like do I have to make the person believe what I believe but when the actual needs on a tangible level clash that's when we get problems and how you overcome that how you figure out how to get people to not necessarily agree but to be willing to give up a little bit of yeah. that of that selfishness a little bit of that self-care or egotism whichever side of the line it is mm. in order for the greater good I mean that's tough and I think that conflict is exactly where I was coming from because I mean, when I say egotistical, I guess I just mean that most humans are focused on humans, which is entirely mm. normal. <laughs> yes. But exactly as you say, human needs are making life very difficult on this planet for most wildlife. Mm. And so my drive was to say, well, can I be a voice for the animals? You know, mo- there, is, there are enough people out there working in jobs that are supporting humans to do what we need to do. Can I instead put all of my en- uh, energy and effort into understanding what's going on for this uh, species of possum uh, that's living in a landscape that's been really heavily modified by people? So, mm. you know, lots of trees, lots of old trees have been logged out and those are the old trees that the possums need to sleep in. Um, trying to understand what these animals do when they live in different environments depending on essentially how much humans have stuffed up the environment <laughs> for them. So I think that conflict is exactly what drew me to zoology. My, my rationale was there's enough other people worrying about humans. I'm going to try I'm going to worry about the animals. And that was modelled to me by my family growing up that mm. humans aren't necessarily more important and that all species should have the right uh, to, to live out, you know, live their lives the way they need to. And, of course, that's not what we're seeing on the planet now. Humans have, have massively destroyed, uh, you know, the, the ways for so many animals to live and, and plants too. I mm. mean, it's harder to think about seeing the, the world through the, li- the eyes of a plant, I guess. But the same thing goes, you know, what we've done to our planet is pretty devastating. How else has this drive to connect influence your career? Oh, I think it kind of drives everything that I do, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm such a people person and I guess, you know, if we fast forward, uh, my job now involves huge amounts of teaching and I just love it because I, I really care about my students. You know, I actually, to me, they're not a number. It's an individual and I want to understand exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it and, and how I can help them to be more effective at it, essentially. But I think for me, you know, still connection from pl- to place is, is really important. Um, no doubt in the conversation eventually we'll get to the fact that I've just got back from Antarctica. I've just spent a month in Antarctica. And yeah. for me, being in this place and having the time and the brain space to connect to a place that on the one hand is so foreign, yet on the other hand felt um, really special to me, which sounds odd because I haven't spent time there before, but it, it felt somewhere I could very quickly connect to. I think that's been a real driving force for me all along the way. Well, let's let's talk about the Antarctica trip now. So, tell give us a bit of backstory about what how this opportunity came up and what was the drive behind it. 
Okay, so um, we probably need to talk about how I ended up changing my job. Can we just sure, go back? Sure, yeah, a let's bit go first? back. Great. Just because otherwise Antarctica won't make sense. So <laughs> essentially, I got to the end of my PhD, and as much as I loved so much about the work, I felt at one level really unfulfilled and even though a lot of people around me were saying but of course you should stay in research research is great and you're really good at it research is important I didn't feel that way and I can tell you now I've worked out because one of my other core values is making a difference Mm. and I just couldn't see how the research I was doing was going to make any difference to the planet Uh, I couldn't see it changing any politicians minds about conserving our forests better I couldn't see it really doing anything other than it was really great to have this knowledge about these particular um, animals. So I came away thinking this is not really what I want to do. Even though that's the career path I've been on, I'm perfectly set up now to be, you know, to do a postdoc, which would be the next step after a PhD to be a researcher. But in my first year straight after my PhD, I actually ended up with a one-year teaching job um, at a university and I guess that's because I'd done a lot of teaching during my PhD and I discovered how much I enjoyed teaching. Mm -hmm. And during this first year of teaching, I took part in a competition called Fresh Science and Fresh Science is to help early career uh, scientists, early career researchers, how to not sound like scientists, (laughs) (laughs) how to express their work in a way that, you know, somebody who's never studied science finds it interesting and relevant, so, you know, not using any jargon making it you know accessible to people and during that competition I discovered two things one was that I love telling stories about science Mm. and two was that I watched this um, group of early career scientists go from being very much focused in on their own thing and not necessarily the best communicators to in the space of a week after you know going out to schools and talking to the media and and going out to pubs and you know doing all of these things suddenly everyone really worked out quite quickly how to communicate effectively. And that was a real revelation to me because I thought, well, it's not that hard. It's just kind of practice. You know, scientists can become great communicators. They just have to have practice. Mm. And so I think this whole thing about um, making a difference, I realised that maybe the issue that was preventing scientists from having more impact and making a difference in the world was the fact that they hadn't had the opportunity to learn how to be good communicators and you know, talk to other other people who didn't have their training. And I mean, you know, the, what's the cliche of a scientist? White lab coat, mm. talking gobbledygook, yep. completely disconnected from the reality of life. I mean, that's that's kind of the world that I was in at that stage and thinking, well, hang on. On the one hand, this university is telling me that all our science students leave with really high-level communication skills. But on the other hand, I can't see anywhere in the curriculum that we're actually teaching them that. So I sort of went to the powers that be and said can you let me know where it is that our students develop these these communication skills that apparently they have when they leave? Um, and the answer I got was they pick it up by osmosis. Mm. Which you and I know is not true. No. You don't <laughs> learn how to write well. You don't learn how to understand other audiences. You don't learn how to craft messages. I mean, all the things you're doing so well on this podcast, you, you, you have to practice mm. and get feedback. You don't just suddenly learn how to do it. So... The reason I'm telling this whole story is to where Antarctica came in is that um, I ended up founding a a science communication teaching program at my university because I just felt really strongly that being an ecologist wasn't really going to contribute that much to the world, not not, um, making any judgments about other people (laughs) who do fantastic research. The research is essential. It just Mm. wasn't the right thing for me. Um, and what I love doing is teaching scientists how to communicate better. Mm. And it, look, the research 
the the, the problem with any anything important or any information that's valuable is that it exists in a vacuum. If people don't know about it, if people don't know it exists, and if people don't know why they should care, then it's not going to have an impact. So doing the research is only half of it. It really totally. is about putting the message out there in a way that gets people engaged, gets people an understanding, um, and, and actually engenders action because that's what you're really looking for. You can do all the research in the world. You can put another PhD in another library and stick it on the shelf and it could sit there forever and do absolutely nothing. But until yep. someone knows why they should be reading it and why they should care, yeah, it, it, communication is a skill that needs to be developed and is not an inherent thing. Mm. For me, you know, in in general practice, the focus is a lot on consulting skills about how to understand someone, how to listen, how to get the right information and how to process that and then, and then how to communicate that back in a way that works for them. We, we too also teach about avoiding jargon, about mm. knowing the level at which you need to aim your advice because if you don't know, you're not going to get your message across or you're going to break the rapport that you're trying to build with a patient, exactly. which is far more important than the medicine itself. Mm. The medicine, you can, you can look that up. You can find textbooks and websites and other other valid resources that's fine but the art of general practice particularly is in the communication um so yeah i I agree with you to assume that um to assume that someone will naturally be pick up communication skills is the same as assuming someone can just be a teacher Mm, it's It's ridiculous mm, it is education and being a good teacher is a skill there are and not of course everyone's going to have their own personality and their their own style but there are some fundamentals that mm. are really important and being able to practice learn those fundamentals put them into practice and then incorporate that into your personality and into your style so that you can deliver your message in a way that that fits your style but also gets your message out again not something that you just inherently pick up I think you should come and give a guest lecture, Paul. You've just, you've just absolutely perfectly outlined the rationale for what I do, what I've been working on for the last 10 years. Well, hey, if you, uh, if you, if you want to give this podcast a bit of a plug, I'm happy to come out and be a guest lecturer. But I mean, it's, it's ridiculous for me now. So it's 10 years since I got my first subject up and now I've got a team who work with me who are just the best people ever. We've got multiple subjects. We're teaching undergrad science students, postgrad science students. You know, we teach hundreds of students a year. And it just seems so obvious that that would be an important part of a science degree, doesn't it? But mm. 10 years ago, you know, I had to bang my head against a brick wall for a long time to try and convince people around me that this was really important and that we were doing our students a massive disservice if we didn't give them these skills because, you know, not only does it contribute to the greater good of a society in which more people are interested in science and find science accessible and relevant to them and are making more evidence-based decisions, but each individual student needs to get a job. Mm. And the way you get a job is to have excellent communication skills. You know, we've done the market research. There are so many uh, reports out there talking about what it is that employers are looking for in in graduates. And communication skills pretty much always comes out as number one on the list. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can't write a great letter, cover letter, have a really well-presented CV, if you can't do an amazing interview, if you can't get along and have good communication skills with the people you work with, how are you going to get a job? Mm. So I, I kind of see it at two levels. On the one hand, we're really helping our students to get the jobs they want and to have successful careers. And then hopefully we're supporting them to be out there assuming they stay in science to some, you know, in some way 
to share what they're doing with, with the world in a way that's interesting to people so that we have more people saying, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't study science, but I think it's kind of interesting or I think it's kind of cool or I can see how it's relevant to me um, because I just think having a, a society that's really disengaged from science, uh, big problem, mm. big, big problem. So. And it really, um, I mean, this is... Uh, once again, this is this is how you get your message across: is, is to be able to get people, uh, get everyone involved. Because unfortunately, we do live in an age where, um, I, in a way, experts aren't valued. Mm. There's, there's unfortunately too much distrust in organizations and institutions that yep. that claim to be experts and and some of it's valid of course there are, there are scandals and other issues that have come mm-hmm. happened in the past but it doesn't reflect everyone mm. but the on the ground communicators the people who are amongst it all who and who have their own specialized knowledge they're the people who will have the most impact Absolutely. and so being able to give equip them with the skills to be able to get their message across doesn't guarantee anything of course but it at least gives them some foundations from which they can build and if that's mm-hmm. something that they choose to pursue or if it gives them the opportunity to be if it inspires them to do more to be more uh, to to take a, a career in media or to do more presentations well then that's all the better mm. but as we're saying it's opportunity if you don't give them that chance to discover that part of themselves yep. they may never find it absolutely and it's also you know even for someone who says but but my future is in research all i want to do is be an academic all i want to do is publish papers and go to conferences and get grants i say well just think about what you just said write papers get grants go to conferences, all of those things, you need to be a really effective communicator to do those things successfully. So I guess that's how I finally feel like I've managed to get really high-level support within the university is to realise that to be a scientist, you have to be able to be an effective communicator regardless of where you're aiming those communication you know, outputs to. So, yeah, it's been a long road, <laughs> but it's it's ending well. Not that it's ending, but, you know, at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's brought point, you to a good place. It has. It's brought me to a great place. And so on that, Antarctica. How does this all lead to Antarctica? Yeah, so um, I went to Antarctica as part of the onboard teaching faculty for uh, a in- pretty incredible uh, group called Homeward Bound, which is it's an Australian-based initiative, but it's really a global initiative now aimed at training women with a background in STEM, so science, technology, engineering, medicine and maths, um, to teach women with a background in STEM M uh, how to be more effective leaders, so more visible, more strategic, uh, more, yeah, more effective leaders. So basically this is all the brainchild of a pretty amazing woman called Fabian Datner who um, literally had a dream, you know, woke up one morning <laughs> saying, I think part of the answer to, to the world's miseries is to have more women uh, science leaders effectively. So her argument is that there's plenty of great um, male leaders in science. We, we, it's not that we don't want to have them, that's fine. It's just that we need more women to have the opportunities to be leaders. And in terms of so many of the problems facing the world at the moment, it's uh, people with an understanding of STEM who are going to have be really well positioned to make a difference to leading the world towards a more sustainable future. So uh, Homeward Bound, is that the idea is that it's a 10-year program and at the end of 10 years there'll be a 1,000 women with a background in STEM from around the world who've learned how to lead and who will go back to their countries and their workplaces and bring about, you know, change for the greater good, for a more sustainable future. So in our uh, cohort, so this was Homeward Bound 4 that uh, just happened, we had 99 women from 34 countries doing the most incredible work all around the world in anything you could imagine. Hmm. Um, 
and so I was part of the the twelve member onboard faculty doing the doing the teaching, I guess. Although I have to say that Antarctica itself does a lot of the teaching. We consider Antarctica to be the thirteenth faculty member because there's a lot to be learned from just being in that place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a twelve month program, so eleven months of lots of online teaching, lots of you know um, interactive Zoom calls, lots of homework, lots of things. But then Homeward Bound culminates in spending uh, three weeks. Yeah, on a ship in Antarctica in really a very immersive environment and sort of half the day is, is being in, in sessions, being in classes, I guess you could call them, on the ship and then the other half of the day is going out into the environment and, um, you know, talking or not talking as you see fit and really immersing yourself in this pretty incredible place and obviously learning a lot of Antarctic science as well as talking about the leadership. Um, so my role was part of the visibility team, so we're teaching women effectively how to be more visible and uh, to achieve things, uh, positive outcomes via their visibility rather than, um, you know, just being visible for its own sake, which is obviously not what we're interested in. Mm, Indeed. So why Antarctica? Why is that what it all leads to? Such an awesome question and something we spend a lot of time talking about because obviously it's very easy to to level pretty uh, major criticism. Well, if you guys are all about saving the planet, how can you justify taking that many women on aeroplanes and take them down to Antarctica where tourism is in itself, you know, one of the issues? Mm. So we spend a lot of time talking about that. And I guess Fabian's original idea was if you can take women out of their day-to-day lives and all of the busyness of whether that's, you know, caring for for children or for other people working and take them into a very isolated spot where they're not going to be checking emails and they're not (laughs) going to be doing uh, all their day-to-day stuff. That's part of it. So this is a really isolated and incredibly immersive environment. But I think beyond that, it's about taking women into a place where you can really see the effects of climate change um, and feel it, you know, w- right to you, to the core of your heart. You can feel and, and see and hear what's happening to Antarctica. And I think we all left absolutely convinced that we wanted to be um, advocates for, for Antarctica and for a better planet. So I think it really hits you in a way perhaps that it, it doesn't. I mean, you know, where we live, yes, we know that things are changing, but we're not immediately at risk of... of um, you know, day-to-day tragedies or, or inconveniences. I mean, obviously the fires were pretty um, mm. pretty amazing one week to be in Antarctica looking at melting glaciers and then a week and a half later to be back in Australia and knowing what's going on with the fires. But I think Antarctica just hits you in the face a lot more. Um, and, you know, it's just come out that last week I think was the warmest day ever recorded in, in Antarctica in the history of our records. It was 18 degrees in Antarctica sometime in the previous week, which is... And it's just terrifying, mm. really, really terrifying. So while we were there, we had a couple of days, which I think were seven, eight degrees, sunny. Um, and yeah, you're just watching watching the ice melt. And, and of course, it's summer. Ice melt happens every day in summer in Antarctica. But I don't know, it became emblematic of a much, much bigger problem. And we learned a lot about um, how surface ice is changing. And as surface ice changes, that changes the availability of the krill, which are the, you know, little tiny crustaceans that lots of animals eat. And as the whole food chain changes, um, you know, there's been massive changes to species. Like, you know, we learned about how different penguin species are responding. Some species are at this stage kind of rolling with the punches with climate change, but Adelie penguins, which are just these spunky little endearing 
charismatic little, I don't know. I mean, penguins <laughs> are just gorgeous, right? Yes. And you hear that, you know, in different places, 70 to 90% of their populations have declined because the surface sea ice that they rely on for the krill, because they're pretty um, specialised in what they feed on, the surface ice is just really disappearing. So mm. just much more in your face. So I think there's lots of arguments as to why Antarctica and... There's no question that it's, I feel like it's a huge luxury, you know, to have seen Antarctica with my own eyes. I feel absolutely blessed and I recognise that not everyone's going to get to do that. So mm. now it turns into, you know, what are we going to do about it? And we're all, and obviously the whole journey is carbon offset. There's no question about that. But mm. beyond that, we're all working about, working out, you know, what does it look like now to have um, this incredible gratitude to have seen Antarctica ourselves? How do we, how do we use that um, that energy for good. And so on that, what what is your plan? What 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 has this this trip inspired you to do? Um, look at this stage, lots of personal changes. So um, I just I can't justify eating meat anymore. Um, certainly thinking a lot about travel and trying to make sure that I'm not using a car unless it's essential. We were already only a one car family, but you know, trying to minimise that. Um, talking with the kids a lot about not trying, you know, trying not to buy new things. Mm. Um, you know, let's go to the op shop. I mean, obviously we need to buy food and toiletries, but beyond that, you know, we've set a challenge for 12 months of trying to not buy anything new. Mm -hmm. So no new clothes, no new anything. You know, we've got a couple of op shops around the corner from where we live. So lots of small stuff, but then I guess also bigger things, which are still in process. So talking with, with colleagues and friends about, how can we be more visible? How can we use the, the I guess, the fear and the, and the anxiety and the worry that everyone's feeling after this really confronting summer? How can we um, capitalise? Sounds very manipulative, yeah, but how can but we harness that, that um, emotion that everyone's feeling now so that when we have another election, which sadly is not for a while, <laughs> how can we get people to remember how they're feeling right now about the changes they want to see in the world? So... I don't know. And for me, there's also still lots of big questions about, well, what, what what can I do? You know, I've got a job that I feel is really useful. I feel like teaching hundreds and hundreds of science students every year how to communicate more effectively and how to have impact. I genuinely came back from Antarctica thinking, no, this is a useful job. I, I don't feel like I need to throw everything out and start again in terms of my career. But yeah, what does that look like in terms of empowering these amazing students? You know, we just get the best students. They are so <laughs> smart and so committed and they're just incredible. Uh, to what extent do I more need to be talking more actively about empowering them to, to think not just about their own little research world but what they can be contributing to the world more, um, you know, more broadly? So I'm still in the thick of deciding what it all means, really. And this is certainly yeah. no impetus for you to decide immediately what it all means. And, you know, I imagine that a lot of it will unfold with time as you sort of yep. incorporate what you've learned from it into your day-to-day -day life and you can see where the impact has been in terms of behavior changes and how you want to influence the world. I, yep. You know, uh, that's, that's natural, really, that you haven't figured it all out now. Uh, can you can you highlight a particular event or incident that r was really profound for you during your time in Antarctica? I can think of two. One was uh, we were sitting in the little inflatable boats that you get out onto land. So obviously you're on a big ship. You can't take that right into land. So you all disembark onto the small inflatables to actually go and explore Antarctica. And so we're out there and there was lots of surface ice 
And we're all encouraging, if you want to pick it up and have a listen, you'll discover that ice is actually very noisy. And, you know, who knew? Oh. Ice is noisy. So you're picking up and, and think back to your childhood, you know, if you've ever picked up a shell and held it to your ear yeah. and said, oh, I'm hearing the ocean. So it was kind of like that, picking up this piece of ice and holding it to my ear and listening. And it kind of, um, it's, it's cracking and snapping and popping and there's all these noises going on. And what I learned was that that's the sound of these little ice bubbles that have been trapped inside the ice, sorry, air bubbles that have been trapped inside the ice for a long time that as the ice is melting are forced to the surface and as they release you hear this popping sound. And what I didn't understand previously was that depending on how old the piece of ice is, those air bubbles could be, you know, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands years old. Mm. And uh, the sound of the air releasing, they're kind of like little time capsules. You know, they've <laughs> preserved an atmosphere from a previous time, almost certainly before we'd polluted the atmosphere mm. with greenhouse gases. And I, I found it deeply heartbreaking and emotional to picture this kind of reunion of this little time capsule piece of air being released back into the atmosphere as a whole and kind of anthropomorphizing and thinking about this little bubble saying, my gosh, what on earth happened out here? <laughs> you know, what have, what's happened to this place? This is not the same composition as I am. I don't understand. What's all this pollution? And I don't know. I know that's a ridiculous thing to imagine, an air no. bubble talking. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a way to conceptualize it in, in a way that makes sense in your mind to, to kind yep. of think, well, to, to, to really highlight the differences in, in the environments. I, I don't think it's ridiculous at all. We all communicate in different ways and yeah. think in different ways yeah so i found that pretty amazing and then i mean obviously the wildlife and just i don't know looking at a penguin or an elephant seal or an orca or a humpback whale and thinking you know what have you done to deserve what we've done to the planet but i think probably more than that it was just the silence so you know my life's pretty busy i work full time i've got kids i volunteer on the radio you know i do all sorts of things and i don't get a lot of silence <laughs> and there was one night in particular I remember being up on the top deck completely on my own and, you know, the sun's setting at around 11, 11.30 p.m. So it's it's very quiet and the sunset is just more stunningly beautiful than anything you could imagine. And I just burst into tears because I was so overwhelmed by how beautiful it was and how grateful I was to be there and how grateful I was to be surrounded by these unbelievable women making so many incredible contributions to the world but at the same time this deep sadness that you know will this exist when my kids are old enough to come here will they ever get to see Antarctica how much of it's going to have melted and so yeah I just had this profound night of kind of weeping on my own on the deck because I was just completely overwhelmed both by the positive side of you know how grateful I was and just how devastated I was to kind of think about what was going on. So I think that night will stay with me for a very long time. Mm. Um, you mentioned earlier that you uh, you were volunteer for a radio station. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that actually came out of the uh, Fresh Science competition that I mentioned earlier in our conversation. So my first year of being a, an academic, I took part in this competition to learn how to not sound like a scientist. <laughs> And out of that, I got invited to be um, interviewed on Triple um, R. So, Three Triple R's Australia's largest community radio station based here in Melbourne. And I got invited to be interviewed on the kind of flagship science show that we do on Sunday mornings. And um, I just came in and talked about my own research, but obviously I was enthusiastic and passionate enough and, and all the rest that I got invited to come back and sort of audition to be a co-host. 
And I remember we were living down on the peninsula at the time, so I was travelling up from the peninsula to Melbourne and my entire gig for that show was a two-and-a-half-minute news story. (laughs) (laughs) And I just talked to my – I was driving up and, uh, yeah, for the the hour and a half or whatever it took to get up to the city, I just talked my way around this story over and over and over again. And, yeah, so went on and delivered the news story and was invited to become one of the co-hosts. So that was – nearly 15 years ago and then I think six years ago I got invited to become kind of the resident scientist for the breakfast show so every morning I get to spend 10 minutes talking about science with the um, three fantastic hosts of the breakfast show and and they're just the best because they just (laughs) let me talk about you know whatever topic I've chosen for that week and they you know they at least put on a good act of getting excited (laughs) when I'm excited and ask all sorts of great questions and yeah we just get to talk about science every Wednesday morning so so, yeah, Wednesday mornings and Sundays and I just love it. You know, I'm a talker and there's so much science that, uh, you know, it's never going to make it onto TV because it doesn't have good, you know, good images to go with it. But radio, you get to paint these pictures with what you talk about and, yeah, it's pretty um, pretty fun. How do you choose your topics? Oh, I don't know. Things just catch my eye. Um, people ask me questions. I Things come up in my social media feed. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I'm usually people assume that I have it all planned out months in advance. <laughs> this show I'm doing in three days. I've got no idea what I'm talking about yet. I'll have to lock it in with the producer tomorrow. So hopefully I get a brainwave sometime between now and tomorrow morning. Um, I find it just has to be something that I find interesting. I guess what I'm always imagining. So the segment that I do is 7.45 on a Wednesday and in the morning and I'm always envisaging that there's someone I don't know, sitting in their car, driving to work. And my job is to make sure that even after they've arrived at work and they've parked their car, that they'll stay in the car for an extra, you know, 10 or 7 or 5 minutes because they want to hear the end of what I'm talking about because Mm. they're so interested in it. So I try and pick things that I think people have an inherent interest in. And, you know, the people who are listening, they're ironing their shirt for work, they're trying to get their kids' lunches packed, they're, you know, whatever they're doing, they're busy. So I try and come up with something that... I guess people maybe feel like they're already interested in and maybe they know a little bit about, but they don't have the opportunity or the interest in reading the research. So my job is to tell them what the research actually tells us about that thing. Um, And yeah, it's super fun. So last week I was talking about this idea of dopamine fasting that's really big in Silicon Valley at the moment, the idea that um, we need to have periods of time where we try and minimise any stimulation in our lives. So the people who are serious about dopamine fasting, they have... I don't know whether it's a day a week or a day a month, but, you know, they won't look at a screen, they won't eat, they won't make eye contact with people, they won't have any artificial light. I mean, full-on crazy. Mm, Wow. And this idea that you can somehow reset your levels of dopamine. Now, you're a doctor, you know that you can't really do that. We don't have any way of even measuring the amount of dopamine in our brains. We certainly can't live without dopamine. And Mm. the idea of resetting, it's pretty nonsensical. Yes. Um, So, yeah, so that's kind of my job to say, yeah, Let's, let's just get back to the basics here of the science. Yeah. You can't get rid of dopamine out of your system. You wouldn't want to. No. Um, and maybe this just sounds a bit like meditation, which yeah. has been part of the world <laughs> for centuries. So, yeah, it's I mean, fun. And, and on that, I think it's interesting. Um, sometimes I look at fads as they come along and I, I think, okay, so on the one hand, it's ridiculous. But on the other hand, if it's providing you some pleasure and you're not harming yourself or harming other people, is it necessarily a bad thing? Totally um, even, so, so as you say, if it's if it's essentially meditation, but in a way that people understand it for themselves, well, for them it just makes sense, but they're achieving the same thing as someone who studies Buddhism achieves the same thing. Does it? it you, you, you want to dispute the facts because facts are still important, but then mm. you, at the end you've got to go, all right, well... Yeah, it's a bit ridiculous, but does it make you happy? 
cool. If it does, totally. then I just got to let it go. And I think that's probably the reputation that I have on Triple R is that I'm very rarely kind of extreme at one end or the other. I think most things that I pick, I end up saying, well, the science that's being reported in the media is not necessarily accurate. But at the end of the day, if there's some value in this for people, then, you know, think about it. Mm. it it's, it's, you know, it's people, the idea has taken hold of people for a reason. So let's just understand the accuracy of the science and then we can make more informed decisions about whether you want to do it or not. But I try and do fun things too. I remember I did a story about um, tongue twisters and what's going on, on in your brain as mm. to why actually tongue twisters are, you know, become difficult to say and... Yeah, I've done all sorts of fun things and I try and because I used to get people ringing up the station all the time saying, wow, that's really interesting. How do I find out more? I decided mm. that if I could write a blog that would go with it where I actually, you know, the blog's very easy to read and very um, accessible, but it links to all the primary literature. So if someone actually wants to know what the research is and how to find it, um, then they can do that. Although I must say I found it harder and harder to keep my blog <laughs> up to date recently because <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's really hard to find the time. I love the writing, but it takes time to, you know, to write a really well edited, well researched piece. Indeed. It's hard to do it. Um, and, and particularly because it's not like you're just writing an opinion piece. It's easy no. to just spout out your own opinions and your own thoughts. That, that's, that, that doesn't take much energy. But when you actually do want to do the right thing and back it up with the evidence, you don't want to half-ass that kind of stuff because it affects your reputation. Yep. And also it impairs the trust of the people. And, you know, th there are various consequences to that. So probably better that you don't half-ass it and, and just yeah. give yourself a bit of a break and find the time when you can. Yeah, and I've always kind of said, you know, that that's my job on Triple R. I've always seen my role as a science communicator to communicate the science accurately. And if I can't be accurate, if I can't have had the time to read the literature and actually tell you what the literature says, I shouldn't be talking about it. So, yeah, I take that pretty seriously. We were talking a bit earlier about how you did an art, science arts degree at the beginning and how that influenced what you're doing now. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Uh, I think mostly just with the writing, just I have a real love of writing and it's so useful in my job now because I do do a lot of writing. I've got two book contracts at the moment. I need to do a lot of writing as well as my day job. Um, and so I think, you know, I learned some fantastic stuff. I love studying classics and all this great literature and, you know, I, I'm, I'm just inherently interested in people and ideas and so all of that side of it was fascinating. But just learning how to write properly, which, you know, until my subjects came along or my team subjects came along, um, a few science students, I think, really got the opportunity to do much writing and, and get feedback on their writing. And, you know, the process of becoming a better writer, it's quite time consuming. You know, mm. you would know that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you have to write, you have to get feedback, you have to re-edit, you have to spend more time on it. And, and few science students get the opportunity to do that. So I think that's part of what my arts degree was about, just this love of reading and writing. Did it teach you how to craft a story? Um... Look, it's certainly got me along the way. I think I've become better at that with practice and I'm definitely still learning. I'm not putting myself out there as an expert by any means. But I think it certainly got me started along that way just because I had to write lots of essays. <laughs> mm. I yeah. mean, as, again, as being a communicator, having a 10-minute a ten slot to be able to, to deliver information in a way that is complete but also interesting, I mean, that's, that's tricky. You know, mm. anyone can read a fact anyone can can look can take the take the data but being able to deliver in a way that is engaging but accurate and and, and it's like that that's crafting a story that's mm. that's what story is all about and so you know have you so on that have you figured out any tricks or anything that works for you or a structure that works in your head in terms of how you deliver that information 
It's funny, I look back to my first probably year of doing the breakfast radio show and I'm too embarrassed to listen back to them because I reckon they probably weren't very good because they used to come in with, you know, several pages of notes and feel like I'd only done my job properly if I got through all of them. So Mm. I feel like I probably was, you know, I just want to tell you more, I just want to tell you more, I just want to tell you more. Whereas now I come in with certainly some notes because there'll be things that I don't remember the exact details of, but largely I come in just with the aim of having a conversation and going wherever the, the three hosts of The Breakfast Show want to go. And sometimes that means I don't get through all the facts and that's fine because it's more important to be an interesting conversation. Mm. And I guess I go in with some idea of, you know, if you want to call it a narrative arc, you know, I have some sense of where I need to start and where I want to try and get to. But I'm answering questions from three people who have no idea what that pre-planned narrative arc is. Mm-hmm. And so often we go off in all sorts of different directions. And sometimes I do the politician thing of saying, that's a really great question, but what I really want to tell you is this, <laughs> because I can look at the clock and see we're running out of time and the whole thing is not going to hang together unless I kind of get to, you know, point C. But, oh, look, I think it's still a work in progress. I think I've just learned to be more relaxed and to understand that, Um, the conversation is what people enjoy rather than me trying to get through all of this information. And sometimes I get off air and think, oh, I totally forgot to tell you like the most important point. (laughs) (laughs) What was with that? But I don't know. The feedback I get generally is that people find it pretty entertaining and, you know, they come away having learned something. So that's my goal. And I guess with social media as well, if in the event that you need to add anything on, you can always add it afterwards and you're still engaging the same kind of audience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess that was part of the idea of the blog. Um, even though I think the audiences are probably actually quite different. Um, but that's, that was the idea that I could tell a more beautifully crafted, well-rounded uh, story by writing seven or 800 words than I necessarily would manage to do in the 10 minutes. Although I, I do often find that I just, I don't know, between the four of us, we managed to come up with a pretty fun conversation that, that often kind of lends itself quite well to them being written up. So, And I guess the point there is that, you know, the the value of a good host is to be able to facilitate the conversation and bring it into, as we were talking about earlier, into a language and a space that makes it accessible. And obviously you're doing your part as well to contribute to that, yep. the ease of conversation. Um, but you're working together. It's a collaborative Absolutely. effort. Absolutely. And, and you know, the three people who are currently um, co-hosting the Triple R Breakfast Show, you know, they're, they're just real professionals. They're really good at what they do. And, uh, the fact that they're not scientists is terrific because it means they ask all sorts of questions that I might not necessarily think of otherwise. And on the whole, they're just really good at getting excited about things. And I guess that's partly because I'm choosing topics which I've deliberately chosen because I think I, I can get them interested in it. But yeah, I've been working with this particular crew for a few years now and it's just fun. I really look forward to it because we just chew the fat. It's great. It's good. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to do in your career? Oh, that's a million dollar question. Um, <laughs> not necessarily, it's, it's not a question of what will you do, but is it anything you'd like to do? Uh, I'd definitely like to do more radio. When people say, what's your dream job? I'm like, well, let's just get rid of Richard Feidler. <laughs> so, I can, so I can, you know, no offense to Richard Feidler, but, you know, I'd love to just have the chance to interview more people. You know, what you're doing now is what I love doing. Mm. I just love asking people questions and trying to understand why they do what they do and, you know, yeah, how their values have led them there. And, you know, I find that fascinating. In terms of my current role, I guess I finally now have a team and I get to spend a bit more time sort of in the vision leadership side of things rather than quite as much of just doing the face-to-face teaching because for the first, you know, nine years of 
running this teaching program, I ran every lecture, I ran every tute. Um, mm. And, you know, I love teaching. It, it's, you know, I'm in my element when I'm teaching. Um, but now I get to spend a bit more time thinking. So I guess now it's about thinking, how do we spread what we're doing more broadly? How do we get to interact with more students? How can I help other universities um, around Australia or even potentially around the world to do more of what we're doing? And, you know, some universities have been doing it for a long time. Um, but what we're doing is a bit different. A lot of universities have a, a program, a sort of a boutique program where they teach a small number of students how to be a science communicator and mm -hmm. go out and work as a science communicator. What we're doing is quite different. We're trying to teach large numbers of science students how to be effective communicators. So it's it's nuanced, but it's kind of different. Mm, I get that. So I'd like to be spreading the word more widely that you know, all science students need to have the chance to learn how to craft a great talk, how to engage with different audiences, how to write for different audiences, how to have an effective online profile. You know, these days scientists need to be, well, I believe, need to have an online profile and to be interacting online and to be, um, you know, doing more than just turning up to their day job each day. So I guess, yeah, at the moment it's sort of a visioning stage, having these amazing colleagues to work with. How could we spread the word more and help more students to go out and have impact on the world because I guess where I'm at is I can have you know some small amount of impact um, with what I'm doing but if I can empower lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of other scientists and you know that's what Homeward Bound is for me too in, in you know helping to play a role in empowering these incredible women to go out and have more impact you know it's that ripple effect so I guess at the moment I'm working out what the ripples are and how I can help to have a bigger ripple effect with my passion for communication. Is there anything, looking back on your career and, and the things you've learned, is there anything you'd wish you'd done differently? Oh, look, it's such a good question. I mean, if I'd been clearer sooner on what was really important to me, perhaps I never would have spent my years as a field ecologist being a researcher. Um, but then I wouldn't have the deep, kind of sense of joy I have from having spent those years working in a forest with animals and getting to know them and and I wouldn't have understood what it is to be a researcher and I couldn't do my job now without knowing what the daily grind and incredible difficulties <laughs> and the mental health challenges let's be honest mm. you know my PhD was really hard I had to work all night um, it was very hard to get enough sleep I had to work alone so the animals weren't disturbed you know my mental health was not great for mm. some of my PhD um, and I think having had that personal experience and knowing what it is to try and write a thesis, I think I couldn't do my job well now without having done that. And purely logistic, I couldn't be an academic without a PhD. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, in some ways I think, gosh, they, those years were, were hard and maybe they weren't really um, using my strengths, but I couldn't be what I'm doing. You know, I couldn't have the job that I have now without doing that. So, no, look, I just feel really grateful for all the people I've had the chance to work with along the way and... Um, I guess it would have been great if I could have convinced more people sooner of the value of teaching communication because mm. I had a lot of one-year contracts. I lost a lot of self-esteem along the way, not feeling like what I was doing was being valued, certainly valued by the students, mm. but not valued by the institution. Um, so maybe it would have been great to not you know, have those tough years along the way. But again, I think it was a process. I don't really know how I could have fast-forwarded through that and maybe I wouldn't have the, the really deep conviction and passion I have now had it not been a really you know a really hard road to get here so one would argue that you must have already had the conviction to be able to dedicate your your you know nine years of your life uh, with one-year contracts and hard slogs and an, an organization that inherently 
uh, doesn't value your contribution. That's you. Ha- you have to have some degree of passion. Mm. In the same way that, as you said, with the arts thing, you know, if you, um, you, you might have pursued that, but ultimately it wasn't enough. Like the the desire for that wasn't enough for you to make a go of it. Yeah, uh, and that's that's still a good decision for you because it's a personal decision. It's about Absolutely. what's important to you. Yeah, and it just comes back to my values, which now through the work I've done with Homeward Bound, I can I can verbalise because I've done this work to actually identify what my values are. At the time, I didn't, but it's really obvious to me that I absolutely want to try and make a difference to the world and the way I've worked out to do that. And, you know, people make positive differences to the world all the time, but the way I can best do it, I think, is to marry my love of science with my love of effective communication and, and the fact I'm you know, I know how to teach people how to to be better talkers, how to be better writers um, with this, um, you know, capacity I have for connecting with people. I just find people endlessly fascinating and I don't find it difficult to look at a room of 120 students in front of me and genuinely want to know them all as individuals and genuinely care about them as individuals and I'm willing to put in the work um, you know, to help each and every one of them. So I think I've found my my thing that, that fulfills me and that's the most useful thing I can do. And now I'm helping all of these students to try and work out what it is that they can best contribute to the world and it feels pretty good. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure it must. I, I guess, you know, it's um, talking about inspiring students and to contribute to their lives. I, I think one of the biggest drivers for me to do this particular podcast was, was what you, you've said a few times through this conversation which is that understanding yourself is really important uh, understanding what's in, w- what your values are is crucial because it influences everything you do and the choices that you make but i feel that it is unreasonable of us to expect a 17 or 18 year old to know what those values are and totally. on on the one hand as as a parent you you know this as well you want to protect your kids from having to go through trials and tribulations you want to make sure that whatever they go through they learn but it's not through ardor or through uh, tra- tragedy or difficulty but at the same time, you can see the positive in it. You can understand, well, all right, this was the decision for me. I, you know, it, I ultimately didn't end up, the PhD wasn't where you ended up, but you learned something from it. You developed something from it. And it's that conflict, I think, which I struggle with because I would want my kids not to have to um, work a career for 10 years like I did and then discover actually you don't really like it at all. Um, <laughs> to, to waste all that time when if I'd if I'd known what was important to me earlier, I would have been happier. Maybe. I mean, it's all hypothetical really. You mm. can't go back in time and actually change anything. N equals one. It's very hard to do a <laughs> controlled experiment. <laughs> That's right. Um, but, but yeah, sometimes the negative experiences they teach you something and mm. okay you still should take advice from other people who've gone through it and and try to make sure you understand what you're getting into but ultimately sometimes it is just about doing it and totally. and figuring it out later and hopefully if, and look if you're lucky enough you have the right kind of support whether that's mm. organizational support family friends wherever it comes from um having a safety net or having some somewhere to go back so a home to come back to to be able to find your grounding again in the event that you feel a bit lost. I think those are so fundamental and so important, but not everyone has it, you mm. know? Oh, look, I totally agree. So the this talk that I gave on Friday that I mentioned earlier, I came out with five kind of takeaways. One was know your values. Two was live them. Three was find your people. Four was give your best. And five was don't give up. And each of those things is actually 
quite hard to do. Mm. You know, finding the people, as you say, that you know will have your back regardless of what's going on, actually knowing your values, which of course, I mean, at 17, I mean, at 30, I don't even know if I knew my values, (laughs) let alone at 17. I mean, I think there's something to be said for teaching kids to kind of listen to their gut Mm. and to to, um, trust their sense of, "Is is this right for me? But even then, I mean, I don't know how... Yeah, I, I don't know how realistic it is to expect kids at the stage that they're choosing what they want to do at uni um, or even whether they want to go to uni for that matter. You know, I, I don't know if it's realistic to expect them to have real insight into themselves. So I guess that's why, yeah, as parents, we, we do everything we can to, to support our kids and we hope that, you know, all the kids out there have someone out there who will support them and um, encourage them and, yeah, help them to not give up. I had an interesting conversation with someone who uh, lived through the free university era. Mm-hmm. She she didn't know what she wanted to do either. And so she's, she's a GP now and a very good one at that. Um, but she stumbled into medicine by accident. Mm. She 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 didn't know what she wanted to do, but she thought, oh, well, I actually just want a secure job. Like, So she spent the first few years of uni doing, a, I think it was a fine arts degree or something, and she enjoyed it. Mm. But ultimately, the anxiety of not having a secure income overwhelmed that. And But the the benefit of free university was that she had the luxury to be able to say i'm going to try this mm. if i try it and i don't like it that's okay i haven't lost any except for time i haven't lost anything and again by accident she discovered a career in medicine which she actually really loves she really mm. enjoys what she's doing and i feel like kids these days miss out on that opportunity they're expected to to know what they have to do beforehand to have figured it all out so that whatever choices they make are as accurate as possible whereas what yep. we really should be teaching our kids to do is to explore totally agree and it's just so competitive now everything's so competitive mm. i mean you know on paper my job is i'm an academic academia is so <laughs> competitive mm. you know for any job that gets advertised there's hundreds and hundreds of brilliant people who could do that job perfectly and you know we have to get through to our students that you know, even once you have a PhD, it's something like two to three percent of you only will ever end up with an acad- you know, an ongoing academic position. So if that's, you know, if that's what you're training for, be realistic that it's very unlikely it's going to happen. So yeah, explore other options, work out what it is that you love about science, and think about how you could get that fulfilment and get that joy from from other things because it's very very hard to you know to get the job that you might have thought you wanted to have and in the previous generation that wasn't a given of course you still had to be excellent but much more likely so yeah i completely agree with you if somehow we have to find a way to create space for kids to to go out and explore and and think carefully and reflect on what it is that they love doing and 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 what gifts they have you know thinking about your strengths what strengths and gifts can you bring to the world and i I really like that way of thinking that i think i was just born with i'm very lucky that that's just kind of how i naturally think and i recognize not not everybody does that but you know you're on the planet for a relatively short time what are you going to do to make it a better place and everyone has things they can give but You've got to have the time to work out what it is and the support to achieve it. That's right. Mm. Um, so just to wrap up, are there any... Firstly, where can people find you? Um, so on Twitter and um, Instagram, I'm Cy Doc Martin. I always joked I only did a PhD so I could be Doc Martin. <laughs> <laughs> so then I put a little SCI in front of it, um, Cy Doc Martin. Um, my blog is espressoscience.com. Espresso as in, you know, morning cup of coffee, get your fix of science. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been written on for a few months, but it uh, it will be again soon. Um, 
What else do I do? You can listen to me on Triple R on Wednesday mornings. My segment's called Weird Science. That's 7.45 Wednesdays. And then at the moment, I'm just doing once a month on our Sunday show, Einstein and Go-Go. Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming on to the show, Jen. This has been, uh, been very enlightening and engaging. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me, Paul. It's lovely to chat. Um, all right. So if you enjoyed what you heard, make sure you check out our other episodes. They are timeless. There's nothing you need to be aware of in order to enjoy what you hear. Um, so check out our uh, website and wherever you get good podcasts. Make sure you rate and review. Uh, the more people know about us, the more episodes we can justify making. So um, our survival depends on you. Uh, thanks for listening. And remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet. Yeah.